And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. You know, one of the things I love about this podcast is the chance to learn things about people who I thought I knew. Tammy Baldwin, the senior senator from Wisconsin, has been on the national scene for decades. She's well known as a trailblazing gay member of Congress, but also as a highly regarded legislator and manifestly thoughtful person. But as you'll hear in this conversation, she's also had some searing challenges in her life that shaped her as a person and a public official. Tammy Baldwin, it's great to be with you. I I saw you back in the day when I was hanging around the White House, and it's good to be with you again. Well, it's great to be with you, and uh, thanks so much for having me on. There are a lot of things to talk about that are going on right now, but I'm so fascinated by your own journey and how it's informed who you are as a public official. So let's start there with your your family, because you, you didn't have the sort of normal sort of upbringing. So talk a little bit about your... Absolutely. I was raised by my maternal grandparents. Uh, my mother struggled with both physical and, and mental illness um, and had uh, was 19 when I was born, going through a divorce, moved back home with her parents and me. And um, 19? Yes. So young. So young. And um, I was so lucky that my grandparents were there for me. Uh, my grandfather was a professor of biochemistry at the University of Wisconsin. My grandmother, who thought she was an empty nester because my aunt and my mother had both moved out, um, had gone to work at the university also as the head of the costume department in the um, theater department. Uh And uh, so I remember being raised in both of their labs, the costume lab and, and my grandfather's uh, biochemistry lab. You know, I have many, um, many memories. But, well, let me just ask you about your mom yeah. and, and your relationship with her. How did you, so she moved out of the house? Is that? She had the opportunity to complete her um, education and ended up taking six more years before she got her bachelor's degree. But I have a picture. I'm, I'm uh, just below her shoulders in her graduation picture. Uh, so, I, you know, somewhere around six, six or seven years old. And um, I saw her on weekends. My grandparents uh, took care of me during the week, and then I would usually see her on Saturday or sometimes overnight. Um, and there was no formal court-imposed, you know, custody arrangement. This was just how I could keep up with my mother. Um, and uh, and I saw her struggles, you know, even when I was very little. There were times when she was, it would be hard for me to get her to wake up while I was visiting. And so I would do things around the house and make sure she was still okay. And had, you know, in, in many ways, you grow up really fast when you have a situation like that. That's frightening. It, it was, uh, it was. And, um, and yet I always had the stability of my grandparents, um, who, uh, were obviously there for me when I needed them. And what happened when you went home? Did you tell your grandparents what had transpired? I couldn't wake mom up. I, I didn't. Um, I was, I think, afraid in some ways that I would not be able to see her. And then there were times where things were bad enough that, um, 
we took breaks and, and that I didn't see her for, you know, a month or so if my mother were in the hospital or something like that. And did um, that happen frequently? Was she hospitalized often? Intermittently throughout my, my childhood and certainly um, into my adulthood. Uh, and it was, uh, you know, there's, there's a whole angle there about, um, you know, when she was dealing with uh, chronic pain, doctors in the day would prescribe opioids. And uh, she had um, a lot of uh, periods of her life where um, she was addicted, where she, uh, uh, and that was, you know, a consequence of that when that was when it was hard for me to try to wake her up at times when I was visiting. Um, And then she also went through treatment um, and would be successful for a while, especially because it was chronic pain and diagnosed mental illness. There were, I think, many doctors viewed uh, prescribing painkillers as unavoidable. Mm-hmm. And so oftentimes she would, um, you know, become addicted again. And it was, it was very hard. Yeah. And what was the source of the chronic pain that she had? So it was uh, back pain, mm-hmm. lower back pain. Um, and uh, I have no idea why. In addition to that, uh, she probably had more uh, operations than anyone I know. She had both knees replaced, both mm. hips replaced. She had carpal tunnel syndrome surgery. Mm. She, when she was young, she had her thyroid out, and uh, she'd had stomach surgery. She had back surgery. I sometimes wonder um, whether she was uh, in some ways seeking medical attention so that she could then also keep... Uh, Access the drugs. Yeah. Yeah, and and did this go on? I know she went into social work, and yes, during so. a period after she had um, the first time she had gone through a comprehensive uh, treatment program, um, she became very interested in um, helping others, and uh, so she had her her bachelor's degree was in social work, and she got a master's in family counseling, mm. and um, and she was. Um, very, um, she became successful. Uh, she worked for um, Hazelton uh, in Minneapolis, and yeah. then, and then Which took is a, a job drug program. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And then uh, was um, in an employee assistance program. You know, giving phone uh, phone counseling, uh, and uh, and she was very successful at that uh, until again the mental illness and physical illness, uh, illnesses, um, you know, came back and So she dealt with this all her life. She really did. She really did. I want to get to how this impacted some of the things that you did later, but I also, but before I do, I want to ask you, I'm trying to picture what it's like as a child and you go to school and you're surrounded by kids who have mothers and fathers. You didn't really know your dad, right? I never met my dad. And, but you know, I, I can't say enough about the uh, positive impact that my grandparents had. They, were, they were my rock, right? Yeah. But in terms of how that has an impact, I think, as I said earlier, you, you grow up quickly. And I think in terms of one of the connections I make with wanting to go into public service was as a child, I was trying to fix things that couldn't be fixed, right? Um, I spent a lot of my childhood trying to fix, <laughs> right? And so, so to be able to try to make a difference uh, for others as a young adult 
um, and then as an adult uh, in my career, um, has been um, extremely rewarding. I wanted to ask you, and I have a personal reason for asking this, but I read somewhere that you didn't really talk publicly about this for a long time. And the reason it, it interested me was because, and people who listen to this podcast know this, that I, I lost my dad to suicide in my teen years, and I didn't talk about it for 30 years publicly. And as soon as I did, I realized why it was so important to do, because there are so many people who are struggling with these problems who feel like they're all alone, that this is unique. But what caused you to finally speak about this? So I remember once a very difficult uh, conversation and exchange with my mother about, um, is actually when I um, was uh, thinking about running for Senate. And she, I was telling her I, I might do this um, after Senator Herb Cole uh, mm-hmm. announced his retirement. My old client, actually. Yes. And, uh, and she, she said, you know, when you do this, you tell your story. And I feel ashamed of the fact that I couldn't raise you and that I didn't raise you. And it, I feel the shame again when you retell the story. And so I was... You know, tried to be measured about how um, how much I shared, and when she um, passed away in 2017, I felt that she would want her story to help others, and so I started telling it much more publicly. Yeah, this is um, this is why I, I didn't. I felt somehow, and I was wrong, that talking about my dad somehow besmirched his memory, that it was somehow a blight on his character or a sign of weakness. And and then one day I realized that's exactly why he didn't get help. Yeah. Because we stigmatize what is part of the human condition. And uh, we shouldn't do that. What we should be doing is encouraging people to get the help they need. When I did become much more public about um, sharing um, my mother's story and the reaction I got was unbelievably uh, touching. Oftentimes in a whispered voice, people would come and say, that's my brother, or you've just told the story of my daughter. And there was a, a, such a reaction of, uh, you know, we're going through this too. And you get us (laughs) because you're telling that you've been through this too. You, you've been active both on the issue of drug addiction, addiction generally, and on mental health issues. And I want to ask you about two separate issues. One is you were very instrumental in uh, developing the 988 helpline yes. for people who uh, were dealing with mental illness, feelings of suicide, suicidal feelings, and so on. Uh, the Suicide Prevention Lifeline. And I just saw a story about this maybe yesterday, about the lack of resources in many states to handle the volume of calls. Are we doing enough? I'm not asking about you personally, because I know you do as much as you can do. But are we doing enough to make sure that everybody can get the help that they need? We need to do more. Uh, I was very proud to uh, 
co-author the legislation that created 988 because nobody remembered that 10 digit number yes. yeah. no one had it memorized and right. you you know this has to be memorable and we also knew that when it was up and running which is you know just it's just over a year that it's been up and running that volume of call would calls would increase and we knew that it only works if somebody is there to answer it. You can't you can't be on hold for an hour, right? Yes, that's so, so the first uh, step is um, making sure that um, th- that there is uh, somebody to answer. And um, by the way, uh, sort of novel for me was the idea that you can also text this yes, line. Yes, yeah, and I guess and that's for that being genera- used very yes. And yeah. for this generation that doesn't make voice calls, they make tech, you know, yeah. they text, um, that I think uh, for young people in particular, that it's going to be more accessible. And so I think um, the overall, the reporting I've gotten as this has been stood up in the last year is that the people are there to answer the calls. What's important, though, in follow-up, because it's often just, it's more than just that moment of crisis, you want a warm handoff to a local uh, resource, a local agency, a local uh, counselor, program, whatever. And that's where we have to keep on investing in order to make sure that no matter where you are, there's a a way to continue that support. So, um, and it could take many different forms. I will say by way of example right now, if you call uh, 988, you'll get a question, are you a veteran? If so, you press one and you're um, then brought into the VA system, should you choose to, you don't have to, where you're likely going to get the support, a referral to support of somebody who's walked in your boots before, right? Mm-hmm. Who understands the experience. And it's so important because the incidence of, uh, of depression yes, and, and suicide, 57% more likely among uh, a veteran. Right. We're now um, doing a pilot for uh, people who identify in the LGBTQ plus community. As we see, you know, so much uh, hostile activity uh, at the local and, and, well, state and federal level, the incidence of, of suicide uh, and depression and isolation is um, quite significant. And so, uh, not only do we want to do this pilot, but we want to make sure that we have follow-on resources that are culturally competent. I see a lot in the rural communities. Um, uh, with farmers, I, you know, I represent a state where dairy farming is, um, uh, is, is uh, the frequent type of farming. And the headwinds financially that small and medium-sized dairy farms have faced over the last couple of decades have been enormous. And I can't imagine the the stress and depression one might feel if you're the fifth generation and yet it's not, uh, you know, you're not able to keep it going. And so we've seen suicide rate and mental health crisis in rural uh, America and having uh, culturally competent referrals for, for those mental health uh, issues are really important also. So I think we have to keep on doing everything we can to make sure that there is not just a person to answer that phone call to 988, but the, um, the, the services to refer people to afterwards. Yeah, we should, we should take a moment just to urge people, if you find yourself in that long, dark tunnel and you're looking for hope or help or 
please take advantage of 988 and, uh, and start there. That's right. And start there. But you mentioned rural America, and I wanted to talk to you about the other half of this equation, the other half of your experience with your mom, which is addiction. We do have a fentanyl crisis in this country, and you must see it in these uh, rural areas. What do we do about that? You know, there's the big debate. One of your colleagues, I think, or someone suggested the other day sending American troops down there to deal with the cartels and so on. Uh, You're shaking your head. Tell me, uh, what do we need to do to to deal with this problem? That's right. We have to we have to work it from all fronts, all fronts. Um, So let's uh, start with where these synthetic precursor uh, chemicals are made. It's China. Mm -hmm. We need to have a lot uh, more frequent and frank discussions with uh, folks there who can do something about it, um, prevent its uh, importation into predominantly Mexico, Um, not only the the synthetic precursor chemicals, but also the pill presses are being produced in China and sent. So let's look at the supply chain of this and get as big an understanding as we can. Um, What's your understanding of what the Chinese say when they're confronted on this? I think they purport to be cooperative, but we know that there's usually a lot of influence that state can have over their private sector, and um, they need to do more, and we need to do more in cooperation with one another. And uh, Do you ascribe more malign intent? This is obviously a huge problem for our country. Look, it's been a long um, issue, uh, long-standing issue. Not, you know, the, the fentanyl piece of it is new, but I remember for decades seeing products that we import that are dangerous, um, flammable, or children's toys that have lead or other toxics in it. You know that um, that's what happens when you try to source from the lowest cost of production. Right, <laughs> and so so. Anyways, a whole other discussion we can have a little I bit. I know, later, yes. <laughs> absolutely. But we also have. Uh, we also know that after um, these uh, fake pills are pressed in in Mexico, that uh, right now uh, most of them are coming through controlled border crossings, not through other means. Um, according to the experts mm-hmm. that I've talked to when I've visited our southern border and um, others who are watching the situation carefully, so we have to also look at that. And then I think, you know, again, I said all angles, so let's keep on going. We have to have more education. The The DEA's uh, campaign, one pill can kill. You might think you've just bought an Adderall, so you can stay up all night studying before your exam the next day. But if it's laced with fentanyl, one pill can kill. And it's accidental fentanyl poisoning. Mm-hmm. And uh, we need the um, further deployment of the overdose reversal drugs, the naloxone, and we need more treatment in place for those who are abusing this substances. This seems so obvious. Yes. <laughs> that, I, and I'm, it's kind of a crazy question for me to ask you, because we've both been around for a long time, but this seems so obvious. Why aren't we doing it? Why aren't we doing more? It seems to me this is something that crosses party lines, that crosses uh, you know, geographic lines, inner city, rural areas. Why aren't we doing that? Why aren't we making intervention drugs more available and all the things that you just right. talked about? Well, we are, but it's a slow process. You know, we took some 
fairly bold actions about five years ago to attack the opioid crisis. Um, I can say even in the last five years, that has changed. Five years ago, it was heroin. And five years before that, it was prescribed opioids that um, uh, we've actually been We've had a lot of success in training prescribers that these are highly addictive. And if you've had a root canal, maybe you give three pills for the first three days after the surgery, not a 30-day supply. We've changed the prescribing habits dramatically, and I've seen huge progress on that. But when you're addicted, then you go, well, I can't, my doctor won't give me, so then it's heroin, and then we saw fentanyl. 10 to 100 times more powerful than even heroin. And so the the target is moving and we have to move hastily with it. The overdose reversal drugs are being increasingly deployed. I'd like to say, you know, if you have a fire extinguisher or a defibrillator, can never say that word, um, you ought to also have <laughs> naloxone, right? It, because they save lives. That's why you have them. Right. But in places like dormitories, um, in places... Um, uh, you know, where you would uh, uh, potentially need uh, something like that. And then we are already, as we're talking about this, they're mixing in other substances. Uh, Trank, I'm hearing about, it, uh, yes. is the street name. But um, that's not, you cannot reverse it with these same It's like an animal. Reversal. Tranquilizer. Uh, tranquilizer, yeah. 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 Unbelievable. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support, your sleep number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number Limited Edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Jon Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. The Daily Show podcast has everything you need to stay on top of today's news and pop culture. You get hilarious satirical takes on entertainment, politics, sports, and more from John and the team of correspondents and contributors. The podcast also has content you can't get anywhere else, like extended interviews and a roundup of the weekly headlines. Listen to The Daily Show, Ears Edition, wherever you get your podcasts. And now, back to the show. I just want to ask you a a kind of personal question. And I, I mentioned my dad. You know, I always lived with the kind of concern that well, what is that? What will that mean for me? Here's a guy who I idolized, and I and he had these struggles, and he. And those struggles. Do you, like, I know the president doesn't drink, 
because his there's alcoholism in his family. Did you have any concern in your life that this is a disease and I better be careful about it? Yeah, I think checking in is a very uh, important thing to do. And think about um, my father, who I never met, also had problems with alcohol. Mm-hmm. And, so you had um, real addiction issues in, on both sides. Yes, I do in this family. Although my grandparents, who raised me, used in extreme moderation. And so I had role models that were very close. Mm-hmm. So, I, I, But I do think it's really critical to check in and to... When you say check in, what do you mean? How often do I have a glass of wine? Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. One other thing about your childhood was that you yourself had medical yes. struggles. And I remember, you know, I so appreciate the leadership that you showed when we were fighting for the Affordable yes. Care Act. And you were very instrumental in making sure that kids 26 and under could stay on their parents' insurance. But you had a fairly serious illness when you were young, and it did affect your ability and your the ability of your grandparents to get you covered. Exactly. I had a serious childhood illness at age nine. I describe it as akin to um, spinal meningitis. Um, I had a, a virus. It uh, sort of located itself on my spine. The spine got uh, inflamed. Um, they called it osteomyelitis of the spine. If I say that in a crowded room, everyone looks you know, blank. Well, the only but, reason I know <laughs> that name, that word, is because it's what uh, Mickey Mantle's father had. This was, and yeah, that's so, an obscure fact for yeah. Axe Files listeners. Anyway. <laughs> Uh, well, no, I guess it's what Mantle may have had. Maybe Mantle had it. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah. So anyways, I uh, was hospitalized. My grandpa, my grandfather had uh, health insurance through the university, but it didn't cover grandchildren. I wasn't a legal dependent, oh, wow. right? Uh, it would have been my mother's coverage. She didn't have any. And uh, so, but they never burdened me with that. I just want to be clear. They were yeah, just course. by my side. Yeah. But also like, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? So they tried to find me health insurance. And because I was a child with a pre-existing condition, despite full recovery, nobody would have, you can't get insurance on a burning house. Right. You can't get insurance for <laughs> a child who was sick at the time. And so as you suggest, um, well, should, it's I, the I, issue that brought me into public life, into politics, running for office. So I could play a role in making a difference on this issue. And I got to at the local level, uh, the state level, and then imagine being on the Energy and Commerce Committee writing the Affordable Care Act or our version of it. And as you said, I, I championed the amendment that allows young people to stay on their parents' health insurance until they're 26. But also, um, importantly, I got to support a bill that prevented discrimination against people on the basis of a prior mm-hmm. illness. Insurance companies can no longer say you're uninsurable because you were sick once. My now adult child started having seizures when she was seven months old that we couldn't control for 18 years. Yes. And um, this is when I learned that lesson. I was a reporter at the Chicago Tribune, young reporter, had insurance, thought it was we were covered. And then, you know, they didn't cover her medications. They were really expensive. They didn't cover second opinions. And they were talking about brain surgery. And all of a sudden, I was looking at this tremendous financial squeeze 
And it's the thing that actually drove me out of, or one of the things that drove me out of journalism, because I just couldn't afford to be there. So yeah, I wept the night that the Affordable Care Act passed because I thought maybe other families wouldn't have to go through what we went through. And I'm sure you felt the same way. Oh, absolutely. And I think of all the stories that I heard when we were working on it. You know, yeah, you can even be insured, but if it has a $10,000 limit for chemotherapy and you need six sessions of it, the second uh, round goes on the credit card, the third is a home equity loan, and then you go bankrupt. And uh, that was happening with regularity before the Affordable Care Act. There's so much good there. But, you know, now we have still more to do, uh, especially uh, with the pharmaceutical industry and the price of um, prescription drugs. I want to talk to you about another element of your upbringing and another element of your life. And we should point out, you started out, you've been in public office for 37 years. You did the math, huh? (laughs) Yes, I, I did. And never lost an election, did you? I have not. If you uh, don't don't count, do it, it's not really fun. <laughs> it's not say, worth it. I, I was going to say if you if you exclude the uh, elections I lost in uh, college and in high school for various gov- student government offices. Uh, yeah, you had your you had enough of it there. <laughs> but um, you you said this issue drew you to yes. that. But you you ran for the county board when you were twenty four years old. Tell me what made you. Uh, I read somewhere that. Jerry Ferraro had something to do with it, who was the vice presidential candidate in, in 1984 with Walter Mondale on the Democratic side. First time a woman yes. had ever been on the ticket. T- so, talk to me about that. Yeah. Uh, so I graduated from college in uh, 1984, returned home to Madison, Wisconsin. I'm in my first efficiency apartment. I have a little television on the counter between the kitchen and the rest of the room. Right? <laughs> and I'm watching the Democratic National Convention on the night that she's giving her speech. And I'm going to get choked up even telling this, but there, I don't even, I haven't landed my first job yet. I'm fresh out of college. It's the summer after I've graduated. And she walks across the stage to give her speech. And I see me in her. I'm the world, there's the sky's the limit. It was just that, that visual was so powerful of saying, there's no ceilings anymore. I can aspire. I can aspire and do this. I remember very clearly a conversation with uh, Barack and Michelle Obama and just a couple of others of us when he was thinking about running for president. And he said, and Michelle asked him rather pointedly because she was not sure about this enterprise. She said, what can you offer that Hillary and the others can't? And he said, look, I don't know, but I know one thing. He said, when I raise my hand, millions of young people in this country are going to look at themselves differently. And that's exactly yes. what you're talking about. Absolutely. Absolutely. Return to this health care issue for saying, I now want to pick up one thread of a thought. I know you were a proponent early on of a kind of single-payer health care. And I hear you talk about your struggles, and I think about my own, and I know what the barriers are to such a system. Uh, Obama always used to say, look, if we could start fresh, that would obviously be the thing to do. But we have this system that people are committed to. But it doesn't really make sense, does it? I mean, doesn't, it doesn't make more sense to have a single-payer system? Without question, it does make sense. Um, and uh, I have never lost my belief that that would be something that is fairer, 
and uh, more just, and we would be able to uh, attack inequities and disparities and and make healthcare more of a right than a privilege, right? And so I still I still believe that deeply, uh, but I also think I, I'm also very pragmatic. And uh, so how, how do we get closer to that mm-hmm. um, and make that work? Mm-hmm. And uh, it's, it's, it's challenging, um, but a lot of people thought we could never do the Affordable Care Act. I um, remember that. Yes. I remember <laughs> right. being told that a million times. Uh, in fact, I told the president when he was thinking about whether to move forward that seven presidents had tried and seven presidents had failed, and it was a very hazardous assignment. And he said, what are we supposed to do, put our approval rating on the shelf and admire it for eight years? Or are we supposed to draw it down? And I'll always honor him yes. for that decision. I always say I, I, I loved him so much because he listened to me so little. <laughs> so, um, so the other thing about you, I mean, I think when your name kind of arose in American politics, the thing that people remember is that you were one of the first openly gay people to serve in the Wisconsin legislature, yes. uh, in the Congress, and so on. Talk to me about that journey. Yes. And let's start when you were a kid and your, your sort of awakening the, yeah. uh, uh, about your, orienta- your sexual orientation. It goes back to the question of no mom, no dad. Who did you have to talk to? Yes. Well, I will tell you, I uh, came out to myself uh, and others in college. So I was a young adult. And, uh, you know, it was an an interesting time uh, because, you know, you're surrounded by learning. And I didn't have any, uh, you know, gay role models at the time. And I remember reaching out for everything I could find to read or the few documentaries that existed um, before Stonewall, learning about these really courageous people and activists who created a movement and, um, and and also being a little bit outraged that I hadn't learned about these folks in my high school or, or uh, college curriculum. And so that's, you know, um, even in Madison, Wisconsin, even in Madison, Wisconsin, unless I wasn't paying attention, but I, I think I probably was. Um, but anyways, you know, th- that was um, part of my learning process. I'm coming out to myself and then I begin coming out to others, um, and including upon graduation, coming back and telling my grandmother and my mother and um, all my high school friends who were still around. And I, I remember one of the most famous reactions, almost everybody was really positive and supportive. And one of the most famous reactions was from my dear, dear friend who was mad at me because I didn't tell her earlier. It's like, well, you didn't trust me? Why didn't you tell me when this was happening, etc.? So, so you had support. I had a lot of support. And interestingly, I, I did that, have that struggle of I knew I was interested in, um, in maybe running for office, and I thought I would have to make a choice between being in the closet and running or being out but, you know, pursuing something else. And I had two role models on the Dane County Board of Supervisors who were out at the time. So I crashed through a lot of glass ceilings, but 
it was in my first elective office where I had role models there saying, of course you're going to be out when you're running, right? You're not going to go back in the closet. You don't do so. And you're, you can be successful. And we're here to show you and we're here to mentor you. And so Dick Wagner and Kathleen Nichols were on the Dane County Board. So it helped that I was um, running for office in a community that was um, was progressive and advanced in this area. And, you know, having those successes, I was eight years on the county board, um, rising in leadership, uh, chairing committees, et cetera. When I did run for the state legislature, I did indeed become the first out person uh, to be elected to the state legislature. But it wasn't as scary anymore. That freedom of saying, I can do this um, and be, you know, let everyone know who I am was so freeing. How much did you feel that responsibility as a role model, as an example to others, much as Geraldine Ferraro was yes. to you as a as a woman running for office? You know, on occasion, um, you're reminded of the fact that you are a role model. I I don't think I you know, ever had those experiences when I was on the county board, one of three out members of the Dane County Board. But what I remember still, um, the day I uh, uh, was sworn into the state legislature, so the day I won the election, almost every paper in the state said, had a headline that said, out lesbian wins seat in, you know, state legislature. That's just how, I didn't, it wasn't a name. It was out lesbian wins seat, right? And um, so the day I was sworn in, I remember getting a call from a young man from northern Wisconsin, you know, who had seen the headlines uh, when I won and also seen the headlines again when I was about to be sworn in. And just said, just as you were reciting earlier that President Obama said, that he said to me, I feel differently about myself today. That's so great. And, and it was just, yes, yeah, so moving. And then, you know, the, the when the offices that I held were, you know, more visible, uh, those letters or contacts were more frequent, and it became very clear to me. You know, you don't wake up every morning saying, remind, remind myself I'm a role model, Right. But you're reminded of it by the folks who tell you that you are. You know, one of the most moving conversations that I've had here was with Barney Frank. Mm -hmm. And hearing him talk about what it was like to be closeted and the loneliness Mm -hmm. uh, that he felt. He said he'd go to fundraisers, like even his own fundraiser, and everybody would come in couples, and they'd all go home, and he'd go home alone because he couldn't risk or felt he couldn't risk being out. And it was really poignant, and it's striking, and I'm sure more to you than to me, the speed with which so much has changed in this country. Now, we'll talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so uh, let me, you know, I reflected that there were two out, Um, members of our Dane County Board of Supervisors when I was elected to that office in um, 1986. Um, That year, there was a convening of a group of um, openly gay and lesbian elected officials. There were 14 of us who convened. The word went out 
globally. We called ourselves an international group because a member of the British Parliament came and joined <laughs> us. So we're the International Association. We had some long, drawn-out you know, name of but openly gay and lesbian elected officials. Yeah, appointed 14 officials is and, uh, not an uh, impressive number. And we counted at that meeting. Um, how many others are there that told us they couldn't come for whatever reason. There was a mayor in Iowa, and there was a this. And, and we think there were about two dozen out elected officials in 1986 in the world that we knew of. Today, that number is over 1,000, which is a sea change. But then if you think about uh, legislative bodies and others reflecting America, it's not even close to right. our numbers in society. But there's now so many more people who have a seat at the table and are changing the direction of conversations because they are there and not outside the room. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. And now, back to the show. You've certainly championed these issues, uh, including uh, marriage equality, when you were in the, when you were in the legislature. But you haven't made that your identity as a public official. But you played a really important role recently after the uh, Dobbs decision, yes. when Justice Thomas suggested maybe we ought to revisit same, uh, you know same sex marriage and um, in passing. Uh, safeguards uh, through this through the the Congress. Mm-hmm. Tell me what those conversations were like, because there was a question as to whether you could get to sixty, whether you could get the number of Republicans you would need. What were those conversations like? It was it was fascinating. Um, so the Respect for Marriage Act, which we introduced in response to the Dobbs decision, where uh, people were feeling almost desperate in some cases that they would lose the tools they need through marriage to protect their families. And, uh, and so we passed the respect or introduced the respect for marriage act. It passed the house, uh, where you only require a majority, but I noted how many, uh, you know, there were about 40 or so Republicans who voted for it. And, um, on that first day that that vote was occurring, I happened to be on the Senate floor and looking at the 40, where are they from? Who? And oh, wow, there's some from Ohio. Rob Portman, are you looking at this? Um, and uh, he, he said, yeah, uh, I, I, I'm supportive. And I was like, okay, we got one. I talked to Susan Collins. I talked to Lisa Murkowski. I talked to Tom Tillis, who um, was uh, very supportive. I like, okay, I have four Republicans and this is just the first day, right? And the next eight, because we ended up with 12 Republicans supporting Mm -hmm. the bill, 
was a little bit more like pulling teeth to to get, but I was I was feeling at least an initial surge of of, of optimism uh, going into this. But here's what I think um, made a critical difference, and it is just what we were talking about with regard to increasing numbers of people holding office. Since the Obergefell decision, where uh, marriage equality uh, became the law of the land, more and more of my colleagues, Democrat and Republican, now know people who are gay and married, right? They're people on their staff, their neighbors, members of their extended family. The difference it makes to know someone and care about someone who's gay or, uh, you know, in a marriage makes a critical difference. And I met with Republicans who weren't starting at yes, but wanted to get to yes. And we did a lot of listening. There was a lot of tenacity. Susan Collins was a great uh, ally, as were the other uh, cohort of initial Republicans who signed on to this effort. Um, But I I think that um, there were a few clarifications and assurances people wanted um, to get to yes, and we were able to uh, make those clarifications and provide those assurances, and um, it was uh, it was a long effort, but obviously a successful one in the end. I know that you are a a highly esteemed member of the Senate, and people like you. You're a likable person. I think people can hear that. How much did the person your personal relationships with people matter? Because they not only know those people, but they know you. I think it makes a, a, a critical difference. I am a part of the LGBTQ plus community. And so when you're talking with me, you're talking with me, not about me, right? And so um, I, I found that uh, throughout my political career, especially um, you know, back when I was in the House, I was part of founding the Equality Caucus so that we would have a group of folks uh, willing to count votes and persuade uh, uh, when we had issues like the Matthew Shepard, uh, James Byrd uh, Hate Crimes Prevention Act or uh, trying to get rid of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. And it's fundamentally different when you're talking to somebody who's gay, right, (laughs) about these things. Um, And so I do think that that makes a difference. I think uh, there are friendships. And uh, it's harder to say no when those uh, friendships underlie the relationship. Such an important point because our politics are so caustic these days, so nasty. And part of it is because those bonds of friendship that used to characterize legislative bodies have uh, been superseded by this kind of red-hot, social media-driven, frankly, Donald Trump-driven in some ways, but politics in which you're not just my opponent on an issue, but you're my enemy. Mm-hmm. You're an alien. You're outside my tribe. And um, we see a lot of it now. I mean, we're talking about the issue of marriage, but we've seen a real backlash in the Republican Party uh, on cultural issues, less aimed directly at the gay community, transgender community has become a, a, a focus. What do you make of that? Because there are certain manifestations of it going on in the Senate right now. Uh, Senator Tuberville holding up every appointment in the military, including the uh, the chief, uh, the uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, because of a policy that relates to health care really, and yeah, abortion care. And abortion, yeah. and, and you saw what the House did on the Defense Appropriations Act. First of all, what do you think is going to happen on these things? And secondly, 
Where do you think this is all going? Because you must see some of it in your state as you move around. Well, first, what's going to happen with the policies related to abortion care in the Defense Department? Basically, let me first summarize it uh, for those who aren't following it closely. The Defense Department has uh, provided for the ability to travel for reproductive care, uh, including abortion care, if you are stationed in a location where that care is not offered. You don't get a choice as a service member where you're uh, deployed, where you're stationed. And so if there is health care that you need that's unavailable where you are, uh, this permits travel. The um, Senator, uh, Senator Tuberville has uh, decided to hold up every promotion in the military and until I think his, he would only be satisfied if this rule were rescinded. He's tried or others have tried to make, to get rid of the travel rule uh, as a part of legislation that's moving through uh, the both houses, the National Defense Authorization Act. It's included, I think, in the House-passed version. It is not uh, so far in the Senate uh, version. We're marking it up this week. Um, But I believe because we will require bipartisan agreement in order to pass a National Defense Authorization Act, that it will not end up being a part of it. Because it will not pass the Senate if, if that rescission of that rule is in the bill. And uh, if it can't pass the Senate, it's not going to become law. So I think we'll, we'll prevail. The, the question is wh- whether you can, whether the Speaker McCarthy, who seems to be very much beholden to yes. uh, the Freedom Caucus, whether he can pass whatever you send back through the House. That is correct, but uh, what we send back, if it is a bipartisan product, he can rally some Democratic votes, mm-hmm. one would, would assume, mm-hmm. if there's no poison pills like the one we're, we're talking about. And that's probably how we're going to confront the appropriations measures, too. And that's how the, the debt deal went through. It was actually more Democrats no. in the House and more Democrats in the Senate and you saw the that supported it. You saw the reverberations he faced from that, though. Yeah. So he's walking on a ledge on all these, it's just the nature of after a four fifteen ba- after fifteen ballots for him to become speaker. In that, the was first place, that was a bad sign. That was that was that was a warning sign. Yeah, yes. that, that was a bad sign. But well, just to, let's get back to Tuberville and put a point on that. How how is that particular episode going to end? And you must have spoken with a bunch of your Republican colleagues about this. Yeah. So I can tell you, uh, I, I'm sort of quoting Tim Kaine, but he said, you know, if if he were doing the antics that Tuberville were, was doing, Chuck Schumer would call him into his office and say, you're stopping that. And Mitch McConnell is sort of AWOL on, on taking care of this. He needs to do that. This is a Republican issue, and uh, he needs to address that. Um, it's unprecedented in in terms of the disruption that it's causing, and most of uh, Tuberville's Republican colleagues, um, I think, an increasing number of them, are wanting to distance themselves from his antics. You come from uh, what what may be uh, the swingiest, or certainly one of them, swing states in the country. You obviously have large swaths of rural voters. There is this really sharp division now in our politics between the sort of metropolitan voters and rural voters. And and actually, you know, you look at the Democratic Party and the erosion of support for the Democratic Party in these rural areas has been uh, stunning 
parties gained among college-educated voters in the suburbs and so on. But you've been working across these lines for, as I pointed out, more than a few years. What's the answer to that? What should the Democratic Party be doing? Because these cultural issues are at part of what has been thrown out there as chum in the water to promote this divide. I would say showing up matters, listening matters, and um, and and that's really the the heart of of what it takes. Let me tell you why I think there's been um, it, sort of structural challenges to that. I'm obviously elected on a statewide basis. I represent um, everyone in the state. We have an extremely gerrymandered state to the extent that um, most of our democratic state um, legislators represent cities and the near suburbs. And most of our Republicans represent those uh, rural areas. And if you have a deep red district, um, it's less likely that somebody's going to mount a challenge to a Republican incumbent. So you don't, and at, at these local, more local races where uh, these campaigns are run door to door, conversation after conversation, uh, showing up to every parade and festival and talking with your neighbors. If that conversation is not happening because of the gerrymandering and other related factors, um, you're not reaching folks in those areas. And so to me, showing up really, really matters. I often will show up in a community and they're like, I can't remember the last time we saw a senator, U.S. senator here, let alone a Democratic U.S. senator. And, uh, and then the conversation begins and I listen and um, I, I remember a number of uh, uh, folks that I met when I was running for re-election in 18 who we'll call uh, Trump Tammy voters. Um, so we weren't on the ballot at the same time. It was 2016 when he won Wisconsin, and then I ran for re-election It's good alliteration later. anyway, so you should go with it. Yeah, so. but uh, I was on a, on a dairy farm, um, and we had asked the farmer to bring in um, some of his uh, neighbors uh, who also were doing uh, dairy, and we talked about the challenges, the headwinds that they're facing, the um, and and uh, solutions. And I talked about the issues um, that they had raised that I was championing in the U.S. Senate. And uh, a reporter covering the event had seen some—I don't know if it was a Trump bumper sticker or something—but but asked the um, host, uh, you know, who did you vote for in '16? Trump. Well. What about Tammy? Um, well, you just heard her. She's championing all the issues that we are concerned about. She's listening. She's doing her job. Of course I support her. And, uh, you know, these aren't necessarily red-blue issues. These are not Democratic-Republican issues. These are things that um, reflect hard work on behalf of a constituency. And, frankly, you don't get much harder workers than dairy farmers. One of the things that concerns me is the degree to which we are so siloed now that, um, you know, we get different sets of news. We talk to ourselves and our views are always affirmed in our silo. They're sometimes not always informed. And everyone outside that silo is alien. But there are a couple of things that have, I think, helped precipitate that. And I know you've got some strong views on that. But one was the impact of trade and globalization on some of these rural communities and small towns. The second was 
the financial crisis and the degree to which people felt like, well, if you're really poor, you get bailouts. If you're, you get uh, handouts. And if you're Wall Street, you get bailouts. And we're left with, we lose our homes, we lose our jobs. And a sense of betrayal. And it seems to me Democrats should be more aware of that. There's a reason why people feel alienated. And it's not all about race or and some of these other issues. It, it's also, there are also fundamental failures that happen that disproportionately hit parts of the country, some of which you represent. Absolutely. You know, it's uh, uh, one of the things I champion in uh, the Senate and in the House before then are Buy America policies. I feel fundamentally when you're using tax dollars for any purpose, infrastructure or, uh, you know, the things that uh, the federal government acquires for defense or for homeland security or for health, um, that uh, those taxpayer dollars, whenever possible, should be supporting good U.S. jobs. And uh, boy, we learned during the pandemic uh, the cost of uh, letting those um, jobs all lie overseas. We couldn't fend for ourselves, uh, for our public health, for our security, because we weren't making them here in sufficient quantity. And um, I think that uh, people want to see us fighting to bring those jobs back, to uh, reverse the decades of poor industrial policy that we've uh, had, um, so that uh, and people feel proud when we make it in America. Right. And um, I think that that is uh, something it was actually one of the two issues that I shared with Donald Trump by America and then getting rid of the carried interest loophole. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, I, 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 I tried to look for some other overlap. I didn't find much. But but I think that those are really important policies that um, show people who did take a huge hit. Um, during uh, times when, uh, you know, the multinational co companies were saying, we want to produce this product in the place that is cheapest to do it. Well, Senator, you're, I know you're up for re-election uh, this year. Some highly touted potential opponents have decided to take a pass on it. I take that as a good sign and an affirmation of the hard work that you've done. But it's really great to spend this time with you. And I, I really appreciate you as a, as a voice in our public square. Thank you so much. It's been a delight. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Miriam Finder Annenberg. The show is also produced by Jeff Fox and Hannah Grace McDonald. And special thanks to our partners at CNN. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.